Uh, I'm Jimmy Myers. Most of you guys know that. Most of you guys know me. And um, today we're going to um, delve into, just kind of look at, uh, of course, dads. And I'm glad you're here. Um, this, is a, this is a big day. A lot of dads go to church on Father's Day. Um, probably the only other where I saw, we did a study, what's his name, Ed Young Jr. up in Dallas. He did a book called The Great Sex Experiment, where he wanted you to have sex for seven consecutive days. And we did a 10-week study of that book. Guys were dragging their wives into church. It was, it was just like a movement of God. They were all of a sudden extraordinarily interested in Sunday school. Um, so th- thank you. That was a great book, by the way. Um, so thank you all for being here. Um, I'm gonna, there's, some, there's some research. Y'all probably know it. Um, but, you know, I just thought I would focus on it. And uh, if you're here this morning, I realize that I'm preaching to the choir. So you, you, most of what I have to say this morning probably does not necessarily apply to the dads in this room. Most of you may be very encouraged by what I'm saying, because you say, well, gosh, that's great. That's not me. Um, so which is, so you, you either are going to be really angry at me today, or you're going you're gonna to be thinking that guy is brilliant. Uh, one of the two, just kind of depending on where we are. But um, if you could, Stipser, there you go. Y'all probably know this, but back in the day when I was in youth ministry, in the golden age of youth ministry, um, it was... It was just a golden age. It was a long time ago. Um, the, the numbers were always about 60% or so of your active kids will not go to church in college. That was sort of the given numbers. And then after college, about 60% or so of those would come back. When they get a little older, uh, they get married, they want their kids to be raised in church, you would get the majority of those back. Now we know that that's no longer true. Now, evangelical kids that are very active in their high school youth groups, 60% leave never to return again. There's a, there's a book called They're Already Gone um, that addresses this issue. And the book starts out with a bunch of photographs from the U.K., of all these beautiful churches that are now restaurants and uh, clothing stores uh, because nobody attends church in the UK. Uh, I think England may be one of the most non-religious countries in the world. Uh, I know in France, more people go to mosque than to church in France. So the study was basically saying we need to take a look because what has already occurred in, in Europe is currently happening here. And when we look at um, what our churches are doing, we have always done an extraordinarily good job of teaching our kids what the Bible says. Uh, I doubt that you could find one kid anywhere associated with a church that could not tell you that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. So we do fairly well when we are teaching them Bible knowledge, but that's where it pretty much ends. 
and they're not given a great reason why to believe that other than for the Bible tells me so. And for you and I, and in the culture that we grew up in, that was okay. That was enough. Even though I was stunned when I was in high school, and we were in our study hall, and we were arguing about something, and I remember saying to this guy, because the Bible says so, you idiot. And he says, well, I don't believe the Bible. And I remember, it was like, some of you are old enough to remember pinball machines. Remember when they tilted? That's what my brain did. My brain tilted because I didn't know where to go. I just shut down. I had nowhere to go because that's all I had was, well, the, the Bible says it. And the Bible's true because, you know, the Bible says it's true. So I just had circular reasoning. I believed it because I was supposed to believe it, and I did believe it. But I had no idea why I believed it. And when people started throwing the Koran at me and the writings of Confucius and, and all of these were holy books, so what my, made my holy books a holy? I didn't know. And that's kind of where our youth ministries have been. Now, you know, if your, your kid's involved here, Brett does a pretty good job of this, of trying to teach kids not only what they believe, but why they believe it. And I'm telling you, as a young youth minister, I had a, uh, uh, a young lady, I don't know, she was maybe a sophomore in high school, and someone had come up and asked her to do something, and, um, and she said, no, I don't do that sort of thing. And she was so proud as she was telling me the story. It was like drinking or smoking pot or something. And when the guy said, why, what's wrong? She goes, well, I'm Baptist. And she was so proud that that was her answer. And it was just like someone hit me in the gut. I said, oh, my Lord, am I failing. If she thinks that's not why she smokes weed, the, way, the reason she doesn't smoke weed is because she's Baptist. I have failed horrendously. Uh, she needs to have some better idea than that. So it, became, it kind of became my quest um, to make sure kids did know why. And this is one of the great challenges that the church is facing. If you ran, if you ran a, a high school and when 60% of your kids got to college, you know, when, when the kids got to college, 60% failed out of college, you'd have to go back and go, wow, let's examine our educational system because something ain't working. And so that's kind of where the church is today. We're, we're having to go back and look at this and say in the old thing, if we keep doing the same way, the same the same thing, the same way, expecting a different result. We're crazy. We've got to, in some capacity, change our approach for the days in which we live. Because you and I have no idea. You and I did not grow up in a non-Christian nation. Um, depending on where you grew up, it could be a, a challenging place and you know, not a lot of Christians around. But not, nothing like this. Nothing like this. And so we've got to adapt with the times, obviously, or we end up looking like the UK. Next. Um, what our kids basically are doing is, is they are not buying it. Um, this is just a little example of a kid in my office um, 
whose mom died and the father who was extremely active in church. Um, and bless his heart, he was just trying to grapple with the death of his wife, but all he could come up with for his son were bumper sticker they you know god causes all things to work together for our good and god works in mysterious ways and uh and his son just stared at him like he was some you know uh malfunctioning robot that just kept spouting out these these churchisms uh but he didn't seem to connect with the reality of what was going on and he just basically said at that i don't buy it I don't buy it. And that's basically what's occurring with our kids, at least 60% of them. They're coming through, and they're saying, I don't buy it. Um, in the book, They're Already Gone, you know, the, the old assumption was, you know, they're going to graduate, and they're going to go off to college, and then they're going to meet some atheist professor, professor that is going to teach them about evolution. And, well, we lost them at that point. Um, and that's, of course, not true. Uh, we're finding, this, at least the, the research is showing, that they are turning off Jesus way earlier than that. Pretty much coming out of junior high, they are not buying that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. They are not buying that... Uh, Jesus is the only way to heaven. They are absorbing much more of an Oprah approach that do you really think God cares that you call his son Jesus? So it's not that they're, they're making these determinations in college. They are looking at us, and they're looking at our churches, and they're looking at our family, and they're saying, I don't buy it. Now, again, we can say that's a failure of the church, uh, and in, in some ways it is, but the church is nothing but a big old group of families. And if the church is failing, then families are failing. And what I see in my office and have forever uh, on a regular basis is that if a family is struggling, for the most part, it's because a marriage is struggling. And this is where, you know, I'm one of these guys. It's not when I walk into a room, everyone's got to like me. When I walk into a room, everyone has to love me. So I really hope you love me as you leave today. But this is sort of where the fat hits the fire. And all I'm saying is what I see. And this is not in read this. It's just what I see in my office. If a family is struggling the vast majority of the time, that's because a marriage is struggling. And if a marriage is struggling, for the most part, it's because a father is struggling. And that's why the opening slide was dads need a hug. Because they carry a weight. Because when you look at, and I know people are going, seriously, the dissolve of Christendom, and you're blaming that on me. <laughs> Uh, sort of. Uh, now that you sort of look at it that way, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah. Um, <clears throat> because it does, when it comes to the marriage relationship, 
the, 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 the enormously important role of the husband in that, especially when we're talking you know, spiritual things, and then in the family, the role of the father. And, God, and again, again, let me say again, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, you're in here early on a Sunday morning. But the recurring theme in families that I see at the office is dad spiritually is on the outside looking in. Uh, he is he is involved tacitly, um, but he does not lead out. And the and then those that do lead out so overshoot, you know, that they're like these you know Jesus Hitlers that walk around their homes just you know demanding. Um, I always tell you know you know probably heard me say this before, but if you're a father, a Christian dad, and you have to tell your wife and family, I'm the God ordained leader of this home. You are not. It's sort of, uh, when I was a youth minister, they gave me a hat once that said, I'm their leader, which way'd they go? Uh, and that's where so many of these dads are. So the role of the father in the Christian home cannot be overemphasized. Moms can, as they do and have done forever, absolutely do the job alone you see it all the time um you know there's probably folks in here that are here not necessarily because husbands are traveling or whatever just husbands don't want to come it's not their thing that's your thing you go do that with the kids so moms have done it and done it so well for so long um but that still isn't what God would desire, obviously. And we're seeing some of the results. Um, next slide, please, sir. Uh, in my office, I do a thing called the vertical arrow exercise. And so if, if, if your mother said something that was, you know, just sent you off the deep end, say, well, what was so upsetting about that? Uh, well, this. Okay, well, that's good. Well, what was so upsetting about that? Okay. Yeah, okay, I see that. Well, what was so upsetting about that? And you just keep going. What's underneath that? And then what's underneath that? Oh, that's good. What's underneath that? And it inevitably comes to because I I don't feel loved. The vertical arrow. So when people say, you know, we fight about the stupidest things. Well, actually, we don't. We actually fight about fairly important things, such as, when you get down to it, is because I don't feel loved. That's sort of where we are with dads in this whole, you know, kind of spiritual malaise that's going on today, is when we get down to it, it ends up with dad. Can an ineffective dad be overcome? Absolutely. Again, moms have been doing it forever. Uh, uh, my dad, I baptized my dad when he was 68 years old. So I never had a Christian dad growing up. So, you know, it's not like, you know, God just sits on his hands if we have an ineffectual dad in the house. Um, However, you see the overall, I think, the overall damage being done to the Christian home and to the church by these ineffective dads because of how much pressure is put on them, how much responsibility is God given to them uh, specifically. Uh, Josh and I are both... If you can click over, yeah. 
we're both um, adventure sportsmen, as you could probably tell. And this is not a picture of Josh and I. Um, yeah, I'm, I look so much closer to like a beluga whale and with a guy swimming right next to it. <laughs> when I come out of the water, people keep saying, keep your skin moist. And <laughs> so we were, we were doing our advanced certification. And, um, and, and it, so it was underwater navigation. <laughs> and so you had to go and you had to get your compass. And your partner kept you at 30 feet. And your job was to, you know, to kick so many times till you get to so here. And then you turn and then you kick so many times. And then it leads you back to where we started. So I do it and Josh has got me and he's keeping, you know, his deal is to keep me at 30 feet. And I'm kicking and I'm paddling and I'm looking. And we come up. Well, if you've ever been to Windy Point, if, if you get lost going left, you end up in a very scary place. And it's not the underwater forest that everyone talks about. It's Hippie Hollow. <laughs> <laughs> so we come out of the water and Okay, Josh, let's go back down. Okay. <laughs> you know, I have found that only elderly, morbidly obese people are nudist. I didn't, didn't know that. There's just a little technical point to keep with us. Um, so anyway, I was just so far. I was just, I mean, li- literally hundreds of yards away from, I mean, around the bin from where we were supposed to be. So we finally get back over there. And now it's Josh's turn. And so we go down, and I've got the little thing keeping us at 30 feet. And as we're going, I'm looking at Josh going, oh, that's good. I didn't do that. And how did he know? Oh, yeah, that's probably what I should have done. And as I'm trying to figure out all these great moves that he's doing that I should have done, he stops, and, he kind of, and he's looking at me right in my face. And he kind of gives it this, what are you doing? I'm going, what are you doing? And he grabbed me, and he went, boom, and my head came out of the water. As you can tell, Josh is a much better scuba diver than I am. But this is when he said the immortal words, Dad, he took his rag out, Dad, you had one job. Was not asking you to multitask. You had one job. And uh, he was right. What was I going to say? He was right. Uh, I had one responsibility uh, and sort of, you know, did not do that well. It's sort of what we were given back in the day in Deuteronomy. Fix these words of mine on your hearts and minds and tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down, when you get up, write them on the door frames of your houses, on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Teach them to your children. For the longest time, our mandate has always been passing our faith to our children. 
And when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about, you know, light a dark place and salt to make a world thirsty for God, uh, we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We always think, that, well, that is us who are believers with a lost world. True, but most importantly, it's being a light to our kids, being salt so that our children are thirsty for God and reconciling our children to God. More, before we start on any neighbor, it's our children. They're the number one, there's not even a close second reason that as a Christian parent, we are sucking up other people's oxygen on this earth. And that is to make sure that our children have the faith that we have. God designed, that was it. That was plan A, not really a plan B. We're to lead our children. Uh, And that's sort of where we've gone astray, is we're doing that, and we're doing that to an extent it's not, a, and it certainly isn't a, 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 an issue with these dads, and y'all know some, it's not effort. My Lord, we work more than any industrialized nation in the world. Uh, we, don't, we, we don't vacation like other nations vacation. Uh, so, and we're trying to do all that plus all this other. It's not because our dads are not trying. They're not sitting back in their lazy boy with a brewski just watching the UFC. Uh, so it's not that, it's not that they're not trying, it's just a matter of priorities. Um, and priorities have not summed up that teaching these tenets to our children when we walk along the road and when we lie down and when we get up, that is not as important as other priorities in, in, in many guys' families' life. Um, and what do you think some priorities that supersede that? Good. What else? <laughs> do what? Hobbies. Work. Um, if you have not read David Platt's Radical, how many of you have read that? Um. You ought to go get it. It would be worth it. Uh, I love it that he challenges. And this is where we, Republican, conservative Christians, sometimes get our tail in a crack, is because the American dream and God's call upon our life are not necessarily the same thing. And we think it is. We are so, you know, again, everyone in this room, every one of us is stinking rich. Every one of us. And if you're on welfare, compared to the rest of the, you're stinking rich. We have so much that we, we forget how much we have. We just assume you know, we get all mad about entitlements. But, you know, we just assume that, I know we work really hard for the things that we have, but it's as though, well, if I live in America, then these are the things that I need to have. And so often, and y'all know this, so often here's our standard of living, and we spend that much. And so we get a raise or whatever, and so 
We raise our standard of living, and then we spend that much. And we keep chasing it. And so often people will say, especially when I'm dealing with families that are just, you know, just maxed out the wazoo. And when I say, well, you know, what can you do to slow down? I can't do anything to slow down. Well, you could, yeah, you could. I mean, mom could stop working. Well, we'd have to move. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to move. And probably sell those cars and the boat. Uh, and the jet skis. Yeah, you can keep the bike. But yes, it would take a pretty profound gesture of downsizing. But don't tell me you couldn't. Of course you could do it. The problem is, I want all this stuff. And I want to live where I'm living. And I want to have what I have. Uh, and therefore, I tell myself there's nothing I can do. Well, there's not if I'm going to keep up this. But when this is called into question, when this is on the table, all of a sudden, Lord, you've got a gazillion things that could be done to simplify your family, to focus more on things that all of you thought at the very beginning were priorities. There's things that we can do. Next. Um, yeah, I love this. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I love this. This comes in, in Hebrews 12, and we know that follows what? Hebrews 11, which is what? The, the, he, uh, the, the Faith Hall of Fame, uh, where he just lists off all these people that were beheaded and uh, all these for their faith. And, and, and he ends chapter 11 by saying, the world was not worthy of these people in their faith. And now... It's, it's us. Since we had all these people that the world, because every time, remember, when there's a therefore, what do you always ask? Yeah, what's the therefore, therefore? So it's saying, there, since we had all these incredible people in chapter 11, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the, all these people that were such amazing people in their faith, let us. It's, it's as though, we're in this, this relay race and all of these people that have given their lives and their children's lives and all these people that have literally died gruesome deaths so that we have the freedom to believe what we believe, they're all now watching us and we take the baton. And that's kind of where we are in the church today is you know, you guys have been handed the baton of parenting, especially adolescents. And so what do we do with it? Now that all these people are watching what all they did when they had the baton, what are we doing? Uh, what are we going to do? And some of us, I don't think it's wrong at all for us to feel that kind of pressure. Um, and always look at, at the life I'm living and maybe the sacrifices that I'm experiencing with the lives that my Christian ancestors lived and the sacrifices that they made. The, the church has always done really, really well under persecution. You know, it was when Con, um, Constantine kind of made it the church of the realm that Christianity sort of stagnated. Uh, but we do well when we're under fire. 
and 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 so it's a not it's not a bad place where we are. In sort in in a way, it's almost an exciting place where we are. Next one. Um, when we think about our kids in this way, because we we talk about time and treasures and talents. Lord, I've been a Baptist a long time. We talk about time, treasure, and talents when it comes to stewardship. But again, I'm thinking more than even those three is our children. That we're, and we don't necessarily think about our children in that capacity, but we are stewards of them. So our job is to just take care of them during the time that God has given them to us. And how many of you have your last one in the house about ready to leave? How many of you are approach, approaching an empty nest? Yeah. And it was like yesterday. They were in grade school. I mean, it's just weird. It's weird. I know when they're in junior high, you're going, if there's a God in heaven, get them out of this house. (laughs) But then they're out of the house. And it's like, oh, my gosh, that just, like that, it was just gone. And so, you know, in in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is, is, is exhorting Timothy to guard what has been entrusted to your care. And I think if there was a verse where we could say, okay, that's it. That's what I need to do. That's what I need, and this is how I need to view my kids. Uh, and, and, and by the way, it is not, you know, making sure that they do a list of do's and they're not doing the list of don'ts. Um, that's how, for whatever reason, we, we, we universally measure success is, well, did they do all the do's? And did they don't do all the don'ts? Then I'm an awesome parent. And again, it's kind of like, I would like you to meet, you know, Lulu. And uh, she's graduating this year. And we're so proud of her uh, because she has never uh, had sex, not once. She's never even kissed a boy. Uh, she has, couldn't smell marijuana if you waved it in front of her nose. She can't, uh, she's never had just a sip of the demon drink. Uh, she's never seen an R-rated movie. We couldn't be more pleased with the purity of our child. And when you ask, well, what's your secret? Well, I'll tell you. We locked her in the basement at age 10. And she's emerged today. And So it doesn't matter. If we force our kids into doing all the do's and force them not to do all the don'ts, because that can't be a goal. Because, again, you could do that just by chaining them to your kitchen table. And they won't do those things. So it, it, we've got to shoot higher than that. But if we look at our children as a gift from God that we have been entrusted with, and then I've got to guard what I have been entrusted with, then hopefully it can possibly change how we're viewing it. Uh, and enable us to view this in a different light. Next. Um, one of the ways that we take personal ownership in, in guarding this when we've been entrusted with um, is outsourcing our children's spiritual growth. Uh, it never ceased to amaze me as a minister how many, I mean, fantastic parents, uh, they're eight-year-old would call up and say, oh my gosh, 
I think, you know, Mary wants to ask Jesus into her heart. Can we come talk to you? Why do you need to talk to me? Go ahead and do that. I mean, these are people, most of us, not all of us, but most of us have been in church since nine months before we were born. Many of us have. And many of us have sat in so many rooms like this and so many sanctuaries, and we've heard so many sermons, so many Bible studies. We are so full of God's word that if someone squeezed us, we'd burp a proverb. And yet when our child comes and says, what, you know, what must I do to be saved? Uh, we vapor lock. And we go hand the preacher one of the greatest, most beautiful moments that you will ever live in your life. Because we think in some way, we're not capable. We'll screw them up. We'll start to pray to ask Jesus to come into my heart, and we'll stand up a Buddhist. I don't know what we're afraid of, <laughs> but we're afraid. And so we have, we have outsourced our children's spiritual growth. We put it on the Sunday school teacher, and we put it on the youth minister. <laughs> oh, There's this great cartoon uh, that had this kid being put into a cop car, and behind the police tape, this woman's going, where did his youth minister go wrong? Because we're not taking spiritual responsibility for our kids. In fact, Stipster, next. Um, uh, next. There we go. This has been our role. We're going to make sure they get there. So I'm going to make sure they get to Sunday school, and I'm going to make sure they get to camp and to the retreats. That's my job. I'm the spiritual taxi driver. Make that Uber. We can do that in Georgetown. And my job is to get them there and then let the pros handle it. And now, if you, can you go back? <laughs> okay. okay, no worries. Then, well, what we skipped over was this book by uh, Barna and Viola. And have y'all ever read um, Pagan Christianity? Okay, go get it. Seriously, fantastic book. You know, for as much as we evangelicals and we Baptists, you know, we say we, we just, we do church by the book. We're people of the book. My Lord, we're so not the book. Uh, and that's what he goes in. He looks at first century Christianity. And where did this stuff come from? Uh, why do we do what we do? Why is there a stage with an audience and a, uh, a podium and throne-like chairs sitting on the rostrum. You know, where did all, why, why do we do it? And, and you, when you walk into any church, there they are again. It looks all the same way. Um, and that didn't come from the first century church. That's really more of, of Roman-inspired. That's what a Roman courtroom looked like. Uh, so it's, very, it's a, just a very interesting read. And, and he looks at the first hundred years anyway of the church's existence if you went up to a first century believer and said hey were you at church on sunday what would they say they would not understand the question because for them what's the church yeah them them they're the church <laughs> it was not a building it wasn't place someplace you went the church was them there weren't paid 
preachers, paid staff members. They didn't exist. Um, again, it was Constantine and, and other later that kind of organized everything uh, and put bishops up over here and dioceses over there and conventions over there uh, and put people in charge of those things. And then people in charge all the way down to the local church had a person in charge. And what is very weird is the way we look at the pastor's role today, you, you, won't, find, you won't find in the New Testament. Uh, this guy who is a CEO of a large organization, you don't find him. Um, I mean, uh, we do things differently today. And probably one of the things that cost us the most is when professionals were put in charge. And I am licensed and ordained. I get every tax break known to man. And yet, there is no difference between the clergy and the laity. There just isn't. I mean, he's called to do this. You know, your pastor is. And that's fantastic. And from everything I hear, he's doing an amazing job. But you're also called to do your job. And you better be just as divinely called as he is, or why are you at your job? God doesn't deal specially with preachers and ministers because they're extra holy. That's where we get in trouble. That's why we call the preacher when our child wants to accept Christ. It's because we want to hand that off to the pro. Because in a way, we've been taught that they're the ones that have been trained in doing this, so they'll do it well. Um, you know, again, there are people that if they're in the hospital, they could have 30 of their Sunday school members go to see them. But if that preacher doesn't show up, there's going to be heck to pay. I'd say hell, but I can't. So there's going to be heck to pay if he doesn't show up. Because the pros got to show up. It's this, it, Christianity became a spectator sport, basically. And I'm telling you, so many of our modern woes uh, can be traced back to that very thing. Um, so why do our children leave? They leave because of hypocrisy. That is that has remained uh, fairly current, you know, as far as research goes. When, when people say, well, why don't you attend church? Why, why don't you do that? Um, it's lessening because more and more people today are just going, why would I? It's just, it doesn't even register on their radar. Um, but still, hypocrisy ranks number one. And if you'll click one more time, um, Brendan Manning, one of his most famous quotes, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. And this is one of the greatest sentences ever written. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The greatest single cause of atheism in our children today is parents, and I would say slash dads, who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him in their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving child simply finds unbelievable.
it comes down to they're looking at us and they're not buying it. What's the next slide? Is it Gandhi? Yeah. They seem to be echoing the words of Gandhi who famously was quoted as saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. But isn't that exactly what our kids are telling us by leaving to the tune of 60%? I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Or even your kid could say, I like Christ, but I don't like, Dad, your faith. Your faith is so unlike your Christ. It's not as much they haven't been taught apologetics and all that. Bottom line is they've grown up in our home and they have looked at us and they said, I don't want it. The kid at the very beginning, if this is what it is, mom dies and all you can do is read off a bumper sticker. If that's it, then I don't want it. Um, so in a very real sense, our children are responding to our faith like a lost world is. So often a lost world looks at us and says, okay, I don't want that. How many of you, when you accepted Christ, it was because of someone in your life and you said, yep, I want that. Whatever they're drinking, pour me some, because I want that. How many of you had that kind of an influence in your life from somebody older, someone you met, someone... Yeah, it's like, what? Oh, wow, okay. That, whatever that is, that is what I want. I mean, that was absolutely the motivator that led me to accept Christ as a teenager at camp. But what our kids are saying is they've looked at us and they say, no, I don't want that. That's not something I'm interested in. Next. And this exodus of our kids from their faith has got to be our wake-up call. Um, Again, I acknowledge that I'm preaching to the choir. And I'm sure probably today was more encouraging to you than otherwise. And let me also say this, that your child has got to stand before God on their own. They can't stand before God and say, well, you know, it was my dad. He, he was horrible. Uh, he was a horrible Christian. And so that's why I completely denied you with all my life. We can't do that. We were taught you can't do that from the garden. Why'd you eat the apple? Well, that woman. And in fact, God, <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, it's the one you gave me. So <laughs> I don't... I don't want to point any fingers, but so yeah, we were taught from the very first sin. We we don't get that. We don't get to say, well, it was you know the devil made me do it. Anybody, anyone remember Flip Wilson? Anyone in this room? Thank you. God bless you all. Um, so I love speaking to adults. Y'all get it. So we don't get that anymore. So understand that. You know, that your child has got to make their own decision and they can't blame you or anybody else. Lord, as a therapist, all I hear about is how mom screwed up my life. And I keep thinking, well, I'm thinking the common denominator in all this is you. 
not your mom. So I get that. However, it is incumbent upon us to do the absolutely best we can. Y'all know people who were phenomenal believers and their kids twisted off. So it happens. And yet we are called to live as authentic a life in front of our kids as we possibly can. And then lastly, I think it's lastly, yeah. Um, Instead of thinking, uh, wow, I can't believe, you know, um, I think that's putting a little too much pressure. Um, I'm doing the best I can, but hey, it's a team effort. Manning was famous for saying this, but so is Brett Favre and Michael Jordan and, you know, you just name it, LeBron James. All of them will say, when the seconds are dwindling down, the game is on the line, I want the ball in my hands. I don't want it, I don't want the importance of this moment to be placed in someone else's hands. I want it in my hands. And that's kind of what I challenge, you know, the dads, is, is want the ball in your hands. Know that it's a critical time. And isn't it great that you're not helpless in this equation? That you've got all the power in the world uh, to affect the outcome. Um, so in a way, this is not a bad place to be at all. And I would, I would you know, follow it up by saying that you are not a parent of a teenager in 2016 by accident. Um, I would say that God raised you up for such a time as this because there's never been Christian parents that have had to deal with this. Never. Never ever in the history of ever have Christian parents had to raise kids in this kind of culture. And I would say to include Caliglia, uh, the, the most grotesque, you know, of, of you know, Roman debauchery, still did not have to deal with what you guys have to deal with every day. And it's not like God gave you teenagers at a time like this and just went, oh, crap, wow, shouldn't have done that. He's going to mess that up. Oh, well. We'll just chalk those kids off. There's nothing we can do now. No. He knew what he was doing when he gave you children at this time because he raised you up to meet this challenge. I don't know what it is about this generation of parents. I don't know. But God saw something in you that he did not see in me and my generation because he placed you as parents of teens today. And that means that he has equipped you specifically for that role because it was his divine will before the foundations of the world that you would be this age with this age children in this age. And he did that for a reason, because he believes in you. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for every person in this room. And I want to thank you for a day like today where we get to celebrate dads. Because everything else in our culture diminishes fatherhood and makes fun of fatherhood. But Father, you had an extraordinary position for dads. 
And I want to thank you for every dad in this room. I want to thank you for who you've called them to be and how you've equipped them to be that. Father, I pray that you would use them as instruments in your hands to mold these kids, to equip these children so that we will not fear the culture's impact on them, but the culture should fear our kids' impact on them. Father, I pray that you will be the source, sole source of joy and importance and priority in these homes. And I pray that every home represented, every couple, every father, every mom, every home represented in this room would continue to be a beacon of your light in the midst of this very dark world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.